Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault in the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink. Uh, this is episode 73 on the evening of 7th, September 14th, 2017. We are nearly an hour past our actual start time. And when I say our actual start time. Yeah. And I say we, I am referring, of course, to Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and Michael Moynihan, national correspondent of HBO's Vice News tonight. Gentlemen, how the hell are you? Moynihan. Fucking terrible. Moynihan was here first. I was here first. That's incredible. First it was incredible. Unprecedented. And I was going to be an hour early, but I was like fucking Patty Hursted by the MTA. <laughs> and I was literally sitting, and I know like we have listeners all over the place and that no one cares about the MTA. <laughs> but I was like on the train and I was like, I'm going to be so early. And then, uh, and the best thing about the MTA is they're telling you what's going on and you can't hear it through uh, the ladies and gentlemen. So I joined the Symbionese Liberation Army. Yeah. And uh, Sinke let me off at 34th Street, and I actually walked. <laughs> and I walked, like, 15 blocks. No, Moynihan was all set to pregame with me. It's like, hey, I'm going to be there in 10 minutes. we got an <laughs> yeah. hour to kill. Let's no, go and no. uh, do this. And I'm so depressed, yeah. too, all the time, and, and especially now. And so I was <laughs> and I was like, let's get to Midtown. Yeah, no, like, the whole thing is making me sad. Yeah. And so when I got to Midtown, I was like, where are you, Matt? Let's do some boozing. And you were, I don't know where you were. And then Camille didn't get I was here, nodding so. off in this an is really fucking uh, haze. I, yeah, I was going to say this is really boring, but the only thing that isn't boring is the fact that Matt is doing the show and he's got his, he's got his arm in a sling like, yeah, and he's on oxy, oxycodone yeah, and he's drinking yeah. Brooklyn Lager. So yeah. this should be fun. Yeah, this should this should be fun. Thank you to uh, our very good friend and collaborator on the on the wheels of steel, as he calls them. Uh, <laughs> our very own Anthony, Pete Rock. Anthony Fisher. Um, DJ who is, Red uh, Alert. At the controls. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's and, a nostalgic uh, hip hop uh, Thursday or Wednesday or whatever. Yeah. We, well, we started by the way listening to Bobby Womack. Uh, Is that right? I missed that. Yeah. Well, what were you guys yeah, listening to? Uh, uh, just across on Street. Woman gotta have it. Um, a woman gotta have it. Wow. Mm. So somebody dropped a glass in the back because it was so yeah, amazing. Think, <laughs> <laughs> and then we got into a uh, uh, little Black Moon. Mm. Uh, little Eric B and Rakim, uh, P Rock and Seal Smooth, and uh, then we started the show. Yeah, so I mean, let's, let's I walked in, I walked in, and Juice was playing. Ah, that's which great! Is just wow, that's great. It's got a, it, it's the last hip hop song that I remember that has an Ayatollah Khomeini uh, <laughs> rhyme in it. it in, you know, I think there's an Oriana Falachi reference. <laughs> I can't remember, but anyway. Well, well we're going to cut the banter short because we're already boring. late and we're imposing on our uh, guest for the evening, yeah. David Weigel, reporter for the uh, Washington Post, covering various yeah, things yeah, political. Yeah. Uh, Dave has also written a book, uh, mm. a book about prog rock or something <laughs> you of you that. Literally, you literally said that like it was that. a Spanish phrase I, well, that you never read. Thing. The topic, <laughs> Dave, the topic of your book wow. is alien to me. It seems <laughs> entirely inoffensive, however, so I hope you sell a billion copies. Can you say the like name of the fucking book? Entire trunks full. I'm, this is a wind-up. It's, it's build. It's called Anticipation. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The name of this, this remarkable book that I haven't read is The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prog Rock. Because Mr. David Weigel, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. How the hell are you, Dave? Thank you very much. I, I'm great. I, I appreciate that intro. Uh, and I like, wrote the book in part because I, I, I thought there were people who would be super fans and people who don't know anything about it. 
who might buy it or, you know, accidentally pick up a copy that had been left from a magazine slot file or whatever. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's big, pretentious symphonic music. It's great. I think if you brought like a Nick Gillespie in, he could make my case better than I could, hmm. frankly. Yeah, yeah it, it has the, you know, it's great because it has uh, all of my favorite bands like uh, Fender Graph Generator. Uh, in it, uh, Soft Machine, Jethro The Tull. author of like a specific Van der Graaff generator memoir, or, sorry, uh, biography, not the memoir, uh, emailed me today saying he liked it. So there you go. Really? And the reception's been good? The sales have been yeah. good? You're happy? No, it's the, uh, can sold out the first, first printing, which I'm told is good. And, really? uh, all, like all 10 copies? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, multiply that with uh, add some zeros to that, my friend. Ooh. Uh, not too many. Just some. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's not what happened. It's uh, hey, hey Dave, I have a quick question. Oh, it's kind I, of kind of a version of what happened, but you know, it's it's not like uh, no one is ambushing me to ask me questions about Seth Rich in my book signing. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dave, not... I have a quick question. I uh, I intend to read your book when I when I get some free time and I have too many children to get free time. But I was wondering if if Pink Floyd, in your estimation. Uh, constitutes prog rock. Seriously, that's uh, what you interrupted for? Yeah, yeah. No, they, they totally, they totally do, and they're they're in the book. They kind of fall off after the, the early seventies because mm -hmm. they become a different sort of band. And the, the one really negative review of the book uh, focuses on how I don't talk about Pink Floyd enough. Uh, <laughs> I'll take it. Like I want to focus on on bands that don't get as much attention. That was that was my good enough. Favorite. Good enough. Where was the negative review so I can write them an angry letter? <laughs> It was the the Spectator, where I, I actually did a podcast yesterday with someone different. But uh, mm. the the UK Spectator, which was not not an auspicious launch to UK, and it was uh, uh, it was like a really good negative review. If you're gonna if you're gonna get scorched, I mean, you know, what would you rather read a a two and a half star review of a movie or a like you know Mike uh, Mike Medved turkey symbol review? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I know the answer to that. As somebody who reviews uh, books, I'm reviewing something this week, and I was so excited when I was uh, uh, reading the book, and I was like, oh, this is so great. I fucking hate it. Because <laughs> it's so boring to write a fun, like a nice review. I had that uh, same uh, uh, reflex when uh, John Kasich uh, came out with a new book, because I just hate John Kasich irrationally yeah. because of his hands, uh, mostly, but also because of his uh, no labels pretensions. And a promiscuous interventionism, if we're if we're being honest about it, but mostly his hands, which are just huge and they flap and it's it's awful. Um, and then I got it, and then it was like, in order to write a really good hate review, I actually have to read the book. Yeah, yeah, I'm just not gonna. You should I'm always read the that. book under review, but uh, I think it's probably pretty easy to write a John Case. That's, <laughs> That's true. Anyway, well, th there are other things happening, perhaps of less consequence and significance. Uh, there is uh, a deal on DACA that uh, appears to be afoot, and uh, and Dave, I'm sure you can. Help help us uh, disentangle what's happening there. Uh, and then this week, we also have an emerging tale of two failed presidential candidates, Miss Hillary Clinton, who, as was previously mentioned, is out hawking her book, um, which is called What Happened? Uh, she mm -hmm. apparently trying to figure this out, casting about for uh, without new, a, without new rationalizations yeah. to help explain what on earth happened to her, both <laughs> the emails and James Comey and whether or not we should have an electoral college, which is something that she seems to be vacillating on, uh, not dissimilar from uh, Donald Trump. Um, and uh, there's this, this other guy, uh, Bernie Sanders, whose political star, if it's not uh, ascending at a minimum, it continues to exert some sort of meaningful 
gravitational tug on the Democratic Party. And um, I think Sanders is advancing a proposal, um, Mr. Weigel, that you could probably help put into to some context for us. This Medicare for all thing that he uh, talked about in the New York Times this past Wednesday, which is yesterday since we're recording on Thursday. Could you give us a bit of a sense of what this proposal is and whether or not it's something serious? I mean, the the big new development appears to be that other Democrats are actually supporting it as well. Yeah. Well, that serious is a, is a loaded word here because even Sanders, and I talked to him the day before he launched it, even he says this is not going to pass. Uh, he, he will lead with how it's not going to pass as long as Donald Trump's president. It's probably not going to pass in this form ever, although he won't admit that. Uh, he, uh, he will say, this is where we're going to go, where we need to go eventually. So we're laying down the marker. And his marker is Medicare would, uh, over the course of four years, expand into a universal program. So everybody has a Medicare card the way that, you know, if you're, oh, you, your grandpa, 70, has a, has a Medicare card, everyone has one. It would cover everything up to pharmaceuticals, as long as they were generic. Uh, be no copays even for things like buying you know, your glasses prescription, things like that. And it would, he writes in a separate, actually not a bill. He said it was going to be a bill. It's actually a uh, white paper of, of possible taxes. And it would be paid for with just like a ton of taxes on the rich. Uh, I think a top tax rate would go back up to 50, around 52%, a 4% t- FICA tax on everybody, uh, tax on employers, and then some savings. So I mean, he did the same thing in the presidential campaign, but everyone's uh, attention was on Donald Trump instead. So if you were really paying attention to the Democratic primary, you heard him and Hillary arguing about this. This is a a version of that that honestly a lot of us thought was going to be a little bit more moderated because he did get uh, 16 Democrats on board with this, including the senators who were most likely to win the nomination in 2020, like Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, uh, they all signed on to this. Uh, and to it, to it, the extent that kind of surprised Republicans, because Barack Obama did not run on, I will raise your taxes really high to pay for universal health care, right? Democrats have not run on stuff like this since the 70s, uh, kind of earlier. And even when they did, it wasn't this expansive. But now the, I, I think there's this trickle-down confidence by Democrats. They were looking at a president with sub-40% approval ratings uh, who promised, and more importantly, who like promised the moon when he was running in 2016, right? Literally said at several points, if you vote for me, all of your dreams will come true. And they've decided, okay, well, people like big, simple things that would make their lives easier, so we're doing one. Part of the uh, the the <clears throat> defense I've seen from this online um, from people who are sympathetic with it, because as you point out, Dave, they uh, the uh, during the campaign, Hillary Clinton uh, shot through uh, these uh, his uh, uh, Medicare things. He's pie in the sky. You can't possibly pay for it. Mm, it's three tr- ponies, yeah. trillions of dollars. And I presume uh, you've read her book, and I haven't. That she uh, addresses this uh, stuff as well. But part of the uh, defense that I hear from it is like, hey, look, man, this is the beginning of a negotiation. And so we got to state our principles out here. We know that it actually can't be paid for. It will never be passed for it like like this. But if we don't go, you know, full Sanders tard at the beginning, then we're never going to uh, like fight for the overall principles before. Is that some of the calculation you see from the Cory Bookers of the world who, as far as I know, wasn't like a full Elizabeth Warren, you know, three years ago? 
No, the opposite. I mean, Booker is if he runs, people are going to talk about why Ivanka Trump raised money for him. He was he was a really singular, weird figure uh, who was basically liberal, but was cutting every arrangement he could with, you know, uh, the, the kind of people who are now outside the tent of the Democratic Party, like wealthy tech people, uh, utopians, <laughs> weird cultists, things like that. Uh, but you kind of nailed it. So there, there was an argument in the Democratic Party in 2016 about uh, whether Obama screwed everything up. And uh, they liked him as president. But uh, Sanders said this, I think, most clearly that he got in there, he had a mandate. Republicans were kind of ground into powder and people behind him. But he then said, all right, let's start with something that people can agree on. And what Sanders wanted to do and what he then I think would have tried to do as president is you start way off uh, in the outfield and say, here is here's our ideal. And then you negotiate for you negotiate from there. But maybe if you start with your ideal, you get more than you wanted. Whereas uh, I was just looking over some Trump from Obama speech or something else I was writing. And you, even in his uh, speech to Congress, kicking off the final push in September 2009, he says, like, some on the left want a single payer plan. Others on the right want free markets. We should try something in the middle. And the argument among Democrats is we could have gotten a lot more had he not done that, had he just said, we need to cover everybody and then come up with something, something rather later on. Uh, and so that is where they are now. Like the people who would want to be president in 2021 say, I'm not going to do what Obama did. I'm going to start with my dream. And if I get, you know, 40% of my dream, that's better than, that's better than like offering a compromise that the party's going to beat up. And, uh, Again, I keep going back to cynicism on this because they, one, they watched Trump win with a totally unrealistic set of policy promises, right? Like, look what happened with Obamacare. He was going to cover everybody. Then he was going to sign something that didn't cover anybody. Then, and then nothing. They, 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 but they learned in the campaign that big, simple idea is what, 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 what works. Uh, and they also learned that just it, I, I, there's not really a penalty for for being. Uh, for being socialist because you're going to get called that anyway. Uh, it, Trump didn't so much do this, but they ended up with a healthcare bill that whatever you think of it is based on keeping most of the insurance industry in place, having people go through pl private plans but having them be subsidized. And that got called socialism. So they're watching the same Republicans now say, this is government takeover healthcare. This is socialism. They're like, yeah, well, if you're going to do that anyway, just go along. Almost the way that uh, some Republicans, maybe they didn't support Trump, but kind of, you know, the National Review uh, Flight 93 election conservatives to say, look, we're going to get called racist if we say maybe don't let every MS-13 member, you know, like move into your neighborhood. So why don't we just go for the guy who's really racist? Mm -hmm. And I think that the Democrats are not exactly aping that. But when you talk them off the record, they're like, yeah, we we learned you can shoot for the moon. I think that's what we took from this election. Uh, are they overinterpreting this election that I think Hillary Clinton would point out was basically almost won until uh, – you know, the FBI director wrote a letter like there is another universe where the lesson of 2016 is you can't do any of that stuff because no one believes you uh, and you don't win the election. But no, Trump won. So Trump, that changed everything. 
I loved today. Um, I guess it was on Twitter. I saw it, uh, you know, sometime when I was when I was held captive by the MTA. <laughs> I had a brief moment that I had a signal that uh, uh, President Trump uh, prom- promised to veto the Sanders bill if it got to his desk or when it got to his desk. It seemed slightly <laughs> unnecessary to me. It's like you're I think the starter pistol hasn't uh, been shot off yet. But I love the fact that he so clearly has no idea what's going on. He's like, I got to take to Twitter and just reassure people that I will veto this thing that's never going to ever reach yeah. me. It was amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. And if, well, if it got that there, was theory too. It's like a make make the son of a bitches deny, uh, deny it. Make them fight this, you know, yeah. instead of sure. making them shadow box with Obamacare. I mean, if there's if there's anyone who will take the bait uh, and start to debate a policy that is unlikely to pass under any scenario, um, it's certainly Donald Trump. I was reading the the opening of Bernie's New York Times editorial in which he he sort of lays out this grand vision. Do we as a nation join the rest of the industrialized world and with guaranteed comprehensive health care to every person as a human right? Is that black? Or do we, or do we maintain a system like, that is like Ralph Abernathy? Enormous. <laughs> they don't know who Ralph Abernathy yeah, they is. All do. Yeah. yeah. You sound like Byard Rust. OK, I'm just going to read his Camille. We, we've actually <laughs> mentioned Ralph Abernathy like three straight weeks. So yeah, I probably do. Uh, it's true, actually. Or do we maintain a system that is enormously expensive, wasteful and bureaucratic and designed to maximize the profits of big insurance companies, the pharmaceuticals industry, Wall Street and the medical equipment suppliers? Um, grand promises and false dichotomy are the stock and trade of politicians and sort of have been throughout history. Uh, Bernie Sanders peddling uh, an unworkable perhaps unfinanceable, certainly unpassable idea. Um, I, I don't even know that one can, can call it sort of a plan or legislation. Um, it does, how new is this? Has, has Donald Trump really ushered in a new normal or is the politics of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, which some people have pointed out all along, is very, they're very much the same in certain ways, sort of grand populist ideas without much substance uh, as to how these things will be accomplished. In fact, Bernie Sanders um, was um, vehemently, I would say, um, perhaps not in the same ways as Donald Trump, um, anti-immigrant for a very long time and certainly not in oh, yeah. favor of a lot of those policies. I, I, I would say, brothers. I, I would say uh, there is a right wing plan by the Koch yeah. brothers. He still is. The horrible Koch and brothers. And as a matter of fact, said that to me, uh, said that to me recently huh. that, that um, you know, it's all a Koch brother, brothers plot to to depress uh, wages on union employees and get rid of you. Pillow yeah, talk. It's, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was pillow talk. We, the, were, we were at, uh, we, we went to a Klezmer concert. It was huh, really that's, fun. That's cute. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, this is this is not he has not backed away from this at all. Yeah. I mean, I mean, immigration to him is something that is hollowing out the uh, the not middle class, but the working class. Yeah, they're I mean, both they're both explicitly. economically illiterate. It's also worth mentioning that a system that is enormously expensive, uh, wasteful and bureaucratic could certainly be government run and doesn't need to be private. Um, and if the end result of your system is that it is all of those things, you didn't design it to be that way any more than someone who gets into a car crash and there are bodies strewn all over the streets designs the accident scene. It happens to mm-hmm. you. But, but at any rate, I asked a question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it I don't know. The question was to Dave. It's a good question. Is, yeah. Have we really seen sort of the emergence of a new politics where people are actually able to peddle ridiculousness as serious ideas. Deliberate surrealism or unrealism. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Dave. 
I think we have. I mean, I think again, had, had Trump lost, I think maybe not, but he did. And he also just, when you break some norms, the other guy side is going to think you keep on breaking them. Uh, one thing I've noticed with Sanders that he, he will say, and you guys already quoted some of it, that every other country has this, so we should have it too. Um, and that's not normally how Democrats talk about this. They wouldn't say we need to be as good as Europe. They would kind of shy, shy away from that. Who wanted to, who wanted to compare us to that? They've they've basically adopted not just not even something from politics, but this is like the Michael Moore pitch for healthcare. That you know he, he went to Canada, he went to Cuba, and saw who had the cheapest care, and said, "All right, we should rip that off." And that's now the Sanders approach. And uh, I think. There's another way Trump uh, has enabled this because I, I quoted my run up to the P, the Sanders launch that Trump had said really early on, like no, not a lot of people paid attention, but he was at a uh, event with Australia's Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and just made an offhand comment about how oh, Australia's got better health care than we do. And Sanders remembers that. Sanders brings it up all the time and quotes all the time that this guy with kind of his political instincts are basically, I bet this is popular and not much else, mm. uh, said that, quoted, a country where everyone has everyone has what they actually call Medicare, everyone has like a, a full full service coverage plan, said, eh, go with that. That's what, that is that is the ideal. And he didn't go to detail, right? Like, I'm not sure Trump knows what it is. But Democrats took from that, like, boy, he understands that people want to stop worrying about these complicated bills and calls with insurers. That's sure. one other point I'd make about it is uh, I, when I talked to him, he, he kept coming back to how people hate being on the phone with insurers. And I think one thing Republicans did really successfully for for a long time was uh, like redefine the, the, you don't want, do you want a government bureaucrat, you know, poking in your, into your business? Do you want to have, be forced to talk to a bureaucrat where you talk to your doctor and Democrats are saying, okay, yeah, well, yeah, uh, we're going to give you a choice between that or a insurance company. And they're, they're kind of betting on the wheel to turn again and people to hate big companies. One reason they're betting on that is because of the, the Trump campaign because Trump ran as a businessman who knew him from the inside. Don't trust any of these bastards. And they're like, well, all right, well, why wouldn't that work for us? People already think we're the party that hate businesses. Yeah, I think the one thing I'd add to this, too, is that why I would say it's sort of unique now. Mm -hmm. And of course, I mean, politicians since the dawn of politics have been making, you know, fantastical claims and, and absurd promises that can never be met. I think the interesting thing about Donald Trump in particular is is that he promises everything mm -hmm. and it mm -hmm. doesn't matter. I mean, you see this vacillation between positions and you used to have. You know, you could do campaign ads. You could point out that hypocrisy lived large in the in the you know whatever candidate you were talking about. But that has kind of gone away. I mean, people have stopped pointing out. Like Donald Trump said in his tweet today, nobody wants this uh, single payer thing that I have plumped for in the past. Nobody even bothers pointing out that he has said the same thing himself. I mean, he I think he mm. said today either in a tweet or in a quick comment to reporters, something along the lines of like, hey, is this because uh, he's you know working? We'll talk about this uh, on uh, on getting a legislative uh, fix to DACA. Like, is this amnesty? He's like, no, it's not amnesty. It's just what we're doing <laughs> is, is it's a lengthy, you know, uh, path to citizenship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Huh. Uh, but like there wasn't a big response to that because sort of at this point besides exactly. the kind of larping of going back and pointing out the perfect Donald Trump tweet from x number of years ago that is the opposite of whatever he's doing today uh like people are fatigued from the exercise but before we get off democrats Weigel, I want to get um a sense from you 
on this. I want to make two assertions, which you can't disagree with because I'm right, uh, and then uh, ask you to uh, to comment on whether it's a uh, a source of of sort of internal concern or dis- debate within the Democratic Party. Uh, it is this: um, the beating heart of Democrats these days is, to me, seems to be Ernieomics. Right? It's fifteen dollars mm-hmm. minimum wages. It's Medicare for all. It's just like going for it. Let's just let's just go full Jacobin magazine on this shit right now. Um, mm-hmm. This is this. We've seen a lot of kind of uh, of. I think evidence for that over the last three or four years, that's what catches fire with the kids. Sadly for me, it's about that. And it's not about things that are, you know, uh, more about like less interventionist foreign policy or or uh, really getting excited about uh, criminal justice reform on civil liberties. We can quibble on the details of that. But let for sure, there's a beating heart of modern democratic politics that is something around uh, Bernie Sanders' economic uh, program. That's point one. Point two, Democrats um, are close to historic lows or just at least kind of doing a bad job about holding office. Right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is there concern among the Democrats, the professional Democrats that you talk to, that they're going full Bernie right now? That's what that, you know, if Cory Booker is signing up to this, then you can you can tell that they're into mm-hmm. this right now. But this is a kind of a ribbon of a blue state issue. This is a way to make sure that you can't win Ohio again. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this, you know, imposing universal $15 minimum wages throughout the land, which uh, uh, Bernie Sanders was in favor of, is not just nonsense, like, but it also won't play politically. Um, is that, is there a worry that, uh, that Democrats have among themselves that they're going this far, or have we just crossed that line and the death of Hillary was the final repudiation of neoliberalism, damn it? Uh, You don't hear a lot of that in the Democratic conference uh, or with most Democratic candidates. I mean, I've been paying attention to people jumping into races in like the Midwest and uh, states that are still competitive or states that are fairly red. And you see everyone at least starting with let's raise the minimum wage, let's cover everybody, let's expand the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you don't see everyone endorsing Sanders. Still, this is one third of Senate Democrats who back this. Um, but there's there's little disagreement here because l- let's look at the problem they had in 2016. They, they, they entered this election. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the Hillary... The, the the fact of Hillary Clinton and the trust issues people had with her, don't need to go through them all, but they, they get, go into an election with what on paper would lead to a, a victory, right? And then, like, among, among those factors are lots of jobs created under Barack Obama, you know, starting from a recession, but by the end of it, you can run on millions of new jobs. You can go into Michigan and look at a unemployment rate that's basically what it was in like 2006. Then you have all these voters saying, yeah, not good enough. I'm angry. Uh, so... When the the third way and sort of the Democratic think tanks say that we, we need a new jobs message, and a lot of for a lot of Democrats are like, well, I ran and I basically ran on this stuff, but it was blown away by all the coverage of Trump and all the coverage of Hillary Clinton's email. So the to the extent we lost like rural voters, they seem to have come along on bashing trade and promising to bring back factories and things like that. So let's do that again. Like we, that was the one thing missing. Obama was the jobs president, was a president who created a lot of jobs, except it was also for a trade deal with China. So let's, uh, let's drop that part. Uh, I think the one thing they whistle past the graveyard about, which, which I should say Sanders is not, is we need to give on guns and 
in some cases, abortion. Like, we need to have some candidates, and I've covered some, who are just not that liberal on social issues. And again, Sanders will say that, and has, I mean, he doesn't actually ever walk it back, but he'll just take heat for a week um, and, uh, over over that. But I think the his pitch is, look, you just – and maybe he makes this pitch because he's a white dude in his 70s. Uh, we've lost people because they – they even if they're doing a little bit better, they, they should be doing a ton better. And the way that they're going to get that is through basically democratic socialism. So let them have whatever else they want. Let them if they're they demand that no one's going to take their gun away. Sure. Uh, it's the, the important thing is you win so that you start proving that you're going to make, make their wages higher and give them health care. And uh, I think that's more where the debate is. Not much debate about what, where they should go on economics. Even uh, a Joe Manchin and a Heidi Heitkamp are basically going to come around to the public option, which was the Nancy Pelosi position in 2009, right? They, they've all moved left on everything economics. It's just like during Obama's presidency, he controls the EPA and that becomes a regulator of, uh, of the energy industry that really, you know, slashes Democrats in, in, the, in the Mountain West and Appalachia. And he... Signs these gun measures, which kind of pull well, but people, but people who hate them really hate them and vote, and that's the stuff they need to litigate. I wonder about something else. You wrote this week about uh, Nancy Pelosi, and specifically with respect to this uh, proposal from mm-hmm. Bernie with Medicare for All, she is addressing the question of whether or not it is a litmus test. And I think this question is particularly interesting where she's concerned, given the fact that she and Chuck Schumer have actually been working with the president on various issues, trying to get a few things done. Um, it It is debatable. It's funny. I've heard people this week um, and just today, actually, I think it was Deidre Bolton um, was doing Kennedy show um, say, and I'm not certain if she was being serious or not, uh, that the president is using some sort of Jedi mind trick on them oh, in order totally to serious. achieve some kind of <laughs> objective. So um, mm-hmm. that, is there any evidence that the president has uh, the ability to use Jedi mind tricks on anyone? <laughs> uh, does Is there a coherent, this is a conservative game argument that you can imagine, Dave. And relatedly, um, how significant a threat does cooperating with Donald Trump pose for Nancy Pelosi or any other Democrat, given that, I mean, I didn't see the headline, but it probably should Mm -hmm. have been written. Like she had dinner with a uh, purported white supremacist, right? Mm -hmm. That could have been the New York Times headline this week. Wasn't, but it could have been. Right? Right? Am I wrong? What? Who's Wait, who are you talking about? Nancy yeah. Pelosi, Donald oh, Trump. Yeah, I, I guess <laughs> if you could, if you wanted to, you could have. Sure. Yeah. Even you have casually dropped the "he's he's a racist" um, line. So I'm saying this is. Oh yeah. Th- there's well, supposed I mean, to be blowback <laughs> for why. for either he's like one of them. A 71 year old man who like refuses to admit he was wrong about the Central Park Five. Like, yeah, <laughs> he, he definitely is. Like, had he lost the election, I think every Republican's January, uh, sorry, uh, November 9th speech would have been like, "Well, that was racist. We can't do, we won't do that again." Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we, it is what it is. He's he's president for a while. Setting aside uh, the definition of racism that was offered there, the the Thank question God. of <laughs> Matt doesn't want to adjudicate that issue. the The question that I think is still of interest is with respect to Nancy Pelosi working with Donald Trump. Are there likely to be ramifications for her? We've certainly seen some folks uh, clamoring about. Donald Trump's uh, seeming change of heart on DACA. Oh. It's hard to say 
what he was likely to do because all of it is just so contradictory and bizarre. The initial statement from Sessions, um, the subsequent statements from the president who since that time has continued to talk about the heart that he has for these young people and the need to fix things. Is there any potential repercussions for, for either of these folks so far as you can tell? With like liberals being angry at them uh, a little bit. I mean, the tough part of this is distinguishing between what makes people excited on Twitter and what resonates in real life. And the irony of all this is that I think the media has more power to influence Donald Trump than maybe it even had to influence Barack Obama, which was a lot. I mean, this is a guy who read every David Brooks column, God help us. And had like a chief of staff who remember, I think he was talking to like Vox after the election and just had like a litany of the most Aspen ideas, columnists that he took all his cues from, but clearly Trump doesn't like to do things that are unpopular. Uh, and he did a bunch and he didn't like it. And now he doesn't want to offend people. So I, I think the uh, most Democrats understand they can bend him on a lot of these things. They can't on things that aren't that, uh, that well covered. I mean, he's going to, nominate a bunch of judges and a bunch of lower lower cabinet officials, sub-cabinet officials, or, or in, in many cases not hire them and do things that liberals would really hate. Uh, but the, there was like a fever dream of maybe a month where the left was demanding every Democrat vote against every Trump cabinet nominee. And that's that's not really happening anymore. They, they're kind of into this new idea that if you just make life hard for him, and he will, and he then he will bend and give you what you want and alien and alienate his base. I mean, negative polarization is is a hell of a drug, and I think it's at the moment more powerful Republicans. Just if you know, you watch uh, a lot of Republican members of Congress, as I, I saw today, uh, try to say, well, you know, he did this thing that I was against two hours ago, but he's our president and uh, he's he's fighting the left. Um, the left is not quite there yet, but they really. They've got very little to be excited about, and him making Republicans insane—that's that's something. What's so I, if, I, if, I, if he cuts a deal with Pelosi and it makes Republicans insane, they're like, okay, not the deal we would have wanted. Uh, the border stuff is specific, is very specifically, uh, or sorry, very special because. I'm not sure everyone on the left realizes that "quote unquote" border security money in an immigration deal is seen by Democrats as like as. As not as most Democrats as uh, a win, it's just what you were going to get if you passed immigration reform 2013. Anyway, it is oh okay we we're going to hire more border guards, we're going to put up more drones. That's fine. That was going to happen anyway. Uh, I think and see the, the the part of that that worries some of the some of them is yeah, but this is the the Donald Trump DHS, the Donald Trump ICE. They're going to take that money and do do more with it. And uh, I, I, I don't want to fall too much in the weeds here. But uh, at the moment, I think they're kind of sating themselves with saying, look, if we get this guy to sign off on on a dream act because he feels bad and it looks bad that he's punishing DACA recipients, then we'll take that win. Like of all the wins we can possibly get before they win Congress, whenever that is, that we'll take that one. Dave, I mean, how much stock do you put in these kind of hot takes right now of that this is the kind of inflection point for Donald Trump where, you know, Steve Bannon is out? I mean, when you look at the White House and you think who would really object to to this kind of, 
you know, flip-flopping and going soft on immigration and DACA would probably be Stephen Miller and, mm-hmm. you know, God Sessions. knows, uh, Sessions, of course, but Stephen Miller. And, you know, look, we find, we heard today from the New York Times that Sessions drafted a, a resignation letter because uh, he was so humiliated yeah. by the president and uh, probably stuck around to, to do some DACA stuff. But Yeah, you know, he was humiliated over over. Mueller stuff, not yeah. a, not over. Yeah, no, no, no. Of course, of course. But yeah, that, yeah, that you know, that you know, this is would have been you know the DACA stuff would have been a win for him and you know Steve Miller, of course, worked for Jeff Sessions and they they, they were a little coterie over at Breitbart before the election. But you know, how much stock do you put in this? That that you know the boring kind of centrists have taken over, and you know the guys like Paul Manafort and um, you know who's long gone. But this little crew I, who I've been kind of circling around for a story that. I'm doing who are seething and just saying we've lost him we've lost him they don't say that publicly but say they say Don Amnesty they, they, yeah Breitbart. yeah and exa- yeah, exactly you know that you know the Breitbart's been been going pretty hard on Trump and you know Trump there was a story that I saw the other day and this is a lot of speculation that uh, Trump really likes winning and likes being liked mm-hmm. and is enjoying the fact that he's getting a bit of credit by lurching towards uh, the center if not lurching and there's, a towards there's the nothing to constrain him no no yeah. not at all and, and so like what do you think the kind of temperature is within the White House now? In, in you know, you see the Ann Coulter's, you know, frothing at the mouth on Twitter and saying, you know, there's nobody alive that doesn't want to impeach this man now. I mean, <laughs> it's hard not to lick up those delicious. I, it's great. I mean, <laughs> really, really it's hard. not even. And again, this is not somebody who just supported Donald Trump. Somebody who wrote a book called In Trump We Trust. Three months ago. The words written like really huge. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. In, in the, like, the like blood a 70s, of a like Nicaraguan or something. Special, oh like Elvis God. with uh, his name behind him. Yeah. <laughs> in, in enormous bulbs behind him in Trump we trust. So, I mean, is it like, is this the point where, where Trump, you know, just goes towards the center, finds a cozy little spot there because people sort of like him? He's going Arnold in the 2005. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So my, my theory of Trump, and I, I do think just he has like really retrograde attitudes about like, race and culture and how things work. And, uh, that's, that's seen a lot of these lower things. I do. Th- I, I always thought, uh, and this was, I think uh, something that looked really dumb after the election that he might look like 2008 Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, and this is, uh, like Matt especially knows what I'm talking about is not Schwarzenegger immediately, but Schwarzenegger where he lo- after he lost his ballot initiatives and just wanted to win and be popular again. And, and, signed off and hired a Democrat as a chief of staff and that sort of stuff. Yeah. He healed. Uh, I'm not sure the extent to which Democrats will let him get away with that. And certainly like he's less popular than Schwarzenegger was, except for a couple points, but he like, he likes to, he, he likes deals and he likes to win and he never had any allegiance to the Republican party until he started running for president. And so the people like, <laughs> like poor Ted Cruz, who was totally right about all this and got laughed at that, that, I think was very valid. I just thought it would take like losing the midterms for Trump to do that. Uh, and I think on the big stuff, it still would take that. Like he, if he lost the house, I think it is easy to imagine him. Frankly, that's like Reagan did. People forget, you know, Reagan after he lost ground in that 82 agreed to raise some tax rates again, uh, that he would pivot except on some of the, like he's never going to give up on the the refugee and the Muslim bans, things like that. Things that he, he came in there just elementally feeling like the country's getting screwed over. I don't think he's going to moderate on um, his version of hawkishness, which is 
I saw, you know, looking, having somebody, somebody hand him a photo of a, a refugee looking sad or Afghanistan, <laughs> the seventies, women in hot pants, and then yeah. the sun drop bombs. I only need to moderate on that, but I think on domestic policy, he just like, doesn't, he doesn't care. He generally, if he, it, there's a joke among Democrats that if you called single payer Trump care, then he would sign it. And I, I, I think that's like 70% right. Yeah, I think it's yeah, probably eighty five. I'd, I'd go, I'd go a bit higher than <laughs> yeah. seventy. Um, I'm, I'm also a little more skeptical than you on the, uh, on the interventionist sort of military stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I suspect there is a part of Donald Trump that is genuinely um, averse to those things, and that's probably the reason why he talked about it in the way that he does. For the most part, it seems like he, he outsources any kind of critical thinking on those issues to mm -hmm. the dudes with all of the medals um, yeah. and seems to believe that they really know what's going on. So if they're telling them, now we really got to do this, Donald, um, he, he comes around to it, um, which isn't a which isn't a defense of him. Um, I just I suspect that there might actually be if there was sufficient carnage, there might actually be a, a change of heart. No, there. At I least mean, I can hope. Yeah. I mean, if you talk to any of the people in the kind of Breitbart universe, uh, you know, who kind of you know, yeah, penetrated the inner too, sure. inner circle. Yeah. They have the shorthand is the generals. Yeah. He's been, he's his brain has been taken over by the generals and, and one breath, they tell you that he's a brilliant tactician and he knows exactly <laughs> what he's doing. And then, you know, Sato Voce, they say, you know, he is just influenced by the last person who talked to him. Yeah. And right yeah. now the generals have isolated him and, and, and we've lost because of that. Hey, my, if I, if I may jump in here, another thing that the, that the Breitbart or uh, Alt-Light uh, have been, arguing is that the generals are controlled by George Soros and the Rothschilds. <laughs> yeah, that's obvious. Yeah. No. yeah. No, the, Which is the totally not at this thing, like, If you way. did a separate podcast on the like reverse vampire theory of the universe that that like the, the original MAGA chuds <laughs> now have where they were just like he's gonna he's he's he secretly agrees on everything. Uh they they really underestimate the generals thing. I mean the reason I think that actually is hawkish is because I think it comes uh, you know, from from reading him over the years and hearing him talk, he likes America to win. And when you hear people talk about trusting the generals, it's usually in the con for a long time. It was in the context of we would have won Vietnam, but we didn't listen to the generals. Mm -hmm. It's stuff like that. It's it's that the only time we lose things is when p politicians don't listen to the commanders on the ground who have the facts, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, George George Bush said that a lot. Barack Obama didn't. Barack Obama was pulling us out of things and then plunging into others. And the, I think the, the Trump ethos of, of warfare is more about, I don't like it when we lose. And these guys seem to be the ones who could have won because they said after the fact they could have won. Uh, that's why, that's why I think it is basically hawkish. Like he turned against the Iraq war after it was going badly, not because he had a deep seated uh, problem with it, but he didn't, when he said pull out, it was still we should like take the oil and pull out. He yeah. still has a very yeah. mercantilist. Uh, <laughs> However, that works. East yeah. India, Eric Prince, NCB company, <laughs> Eric Prince uh, view of the world. Uh, I like the fact that you just used the I'll phrase East India, Eric Prince view of the world. <laughs> you know, I know that's it's good. It's, yeah. col it's colonialism and uh, like and, and Blackwater. All uh, together, yeah. Where I semi depart from how you posed things about issues that were close to Trump's core like uh, refugees and Muslim bans and things like that, is not uh, immigration, amnesty, shamnesty, uh, part of that core. And are we not in this really kind of wonderful moment right now where uh, things, are, things have been cut loose a little bit? I mean, with him pivoting so violently on DACA in such a short period of time, uh, 
I, I think a lot of people are prematurely getting out there. Well, I knew it all along. He was going to do yeah. this. That Newsmax an article in November 26th and 2012, that just pointed the way. It was all cynicism. You know, Elizabeth Spires talked to Jared Kushner that one time, and, you know, it all makes sense now. I, I kind of feel like that's premature given the centrality of immigration to his coalition. There was moments in the uh, in the general campaign, um, uh, even the primary campaign, when, uh, you know, never Trump was coalescing both at National Review and Weekly Standard, where the question was like, OK, what armies do they run? Uh, and it turns out they don't have any, uh, which is pretty uh, uh, sobering for those people. So now Ann Coulter's having the same moment, right? Like, so yeah. is it just a case where Ann Coulter and the people who have been, prof- and, you know, the Center for Immigration Studies uh, are, are fair, um, uh, are having their moment when they realize they don't have a strong uh, actual following out there in the world because the Trump uh, fan base will move with Trump wherever he goes? Or do you think that this is more, uh, that this is the challenge? This is the moment when we see finally, is the base going to leave? And what's your analysis of that? The Dream Dream Act and uh, DACA folks is, is complicated. And also immigration, I think, is complicated because uh, when it comes to the Dream Act, that's like a model of a social movement, I think. It, it, it has done everything right if you are representing a group of people who are outnumbered and need to tell a story, it's spent, they, those guys spent 10 years publicizing what sort of people were, were quote unquote dreamers. I and mean, I'm using the word and I, I there's a lot of, uh, I think even the AP says stop using the term because it's a little bit loaded. I kind of uh, hate the term to be honest with you, but yeah, I, I, no, it's, uh, I use it cause it's, it sounds better than DACA recipients, which sounds too much, but no, they, so what I, I was leading up to how, they even lobbied Donald Trump. Their DACA, uh, pre-DACA uh, recipient Dream Act would-be beneficiaries. See, see, that's even worse. Yeah, it's, <laughs> like it's met with Trump mouthful. at Trump Tower at one point, like five, six years ago, and he came out and said, "Oh, these these are great kids. They have a great story." And they they went through how their story is. They don't commit crimes. They honestly they lose their status if they commit a crime. They just were brought here when they were too young to remember it, and they want to stay. And so. They got in his head in, I think, a pretty unique way. And the the way immigration is complicated is if you look at the exit polls, the the country did not agree with the Trump immigration position. I think Hillary overestimated by like a ton how much people would vote against him because of that. But it's really less than 30 percent of people who told pollsters that they wanted everyone who's not in the country legally to get out. Uh, they're just very that that is every single person who feels like that voted for Trump, but it was not a majority position. Uh, and so I think in that. But I if there's a strategy here uh, and I don't think it's Stephen Miller's strategy, I think I think it is Trump kind of <laughs> navigating through what looks good and bad on TV. If there's a strategy, it's that he's trying to separate the most sympathetic people in this story from the people that it's easier to demonize, which would be, you know, uh, the MS-13 gang members. Uh, and so Democrats I was, was talking to right before he made this decision, I'd ask them, you know, uh, this looks pretty potent. If I'm watching Fox News every night, I'm informed that immigration equals a bunch of people who don't deserve to be here uh, committing crimes. And Democrats would tell me, but that is why you need to tell the story of the 99 percent of those of immigrants who don't want to commit any crime. They're, they don't even want to accept welfare or anything like that. They're they're here to get jobs and maybe send remittances back or maybe become Americans. And you tell their stories. You emphasize that. And the dreamers are the the, the gold stars of how you emphasize that. So I think he, he he's 
they already introduced themselves to Trump before he was running for president. And he's he, he if he understands something, it's probably through the prism of how this is covered and understands that they're really sympathetic. You need to figure out some solution. And yeah, it's a it's a betrayal of part of his base. But honestly, I just think the trust they have in him, it's not unshakable. We saw how much the trust in, the trust in Bush was, was shakable. I mean, how much sometimes it was shaken with Obama. But they're uh, I think they're willing to shake this off after a while and uh, wait for him to pivot to attacking sanctuary cities and building the wall again. Uh, not all of them. I keep saying they, but I feel like there are some people who are going to get off the train. But if I'm if I'm cynical and and I am, uh, a lot of the guys making these arguments are you know TV and radio personalities, and as long as their their callers trust Trump, they're they're I mean, they'll criticize him, but they're going to find a way to rationalize it. Like it sounds sounds like skepticism, not is, cynicism. Uh, Fox and Friends actually. Fox and Friends is for, is like for this, so I think Fox and Friends is the is the canary, and if they're finding a way to give him an out, then boom. I, I mean, there's there's some poll numbers that suggest that you know the core constituency of Trump voters are kind of immovable on a lot of this stuff. But mm -hmm. most of the other people who voted for him um, are actually pretty pliable when it comes to things like, you know, shifts on DACA and immigration, et cetera. Dave, I wanted to ask you something that, you know, I was uh, today, I was uh, um, listening to the long form uh, podcast and the most recent one is with uh, Hillary Clinton, which is uh, in the Ambien in audio form. If you want to listen to an hour <laughs> yeah. of her uh, making excuses for 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 why she failed. Um, ha first of all, have you read the book? Have you have you trudged through it? It's a. I mean, I've I got a bit through it. I was one in the yeah. office, and I was reading passages that were you know, and I was tweeting about that hilarious one where she. Um, really misunderstood the uh, the point theme. of 1984. Yeah, 1984. Of it. Yeah, really, that, that's really good. You really have to trust the government. Yeah, see what if Winston Smith. Winston just, Smith, you know, is, yeah, he just had, had had read like the New York Times editorial on uh, why we've always been at war with East Asia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, Tom Friedman made some cogent points. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, like Paul Krugman on Oceana. It was a great, yeah. great piece. Um, have you? <laughs> Have you read the book first off? And um, what do you think of this uh, kind of comeback here in book tour? I know a lot of Democrats have been grimacing and saying, please go away. Yeah, it sounds like you uh, you buy her theory about uh, about Comey costing her the election. Well, I mean, I think she shouldn't have let it get within losing distance. And when it was, I mean, it's like a team going onto the field and everyone's injured, uh, but they're up, you know, three three points at the end. And then like someone throws an interception. I think Comey was the interception, but, uh, they probably shouldn't have all like gone out racing, uh, street racing and like, you know, getting high on PCP and fighting each other. Like they, they screwed up so much before it got to that point. I it's feel like my, your sports my, metaphor was kind of collapsing there. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, it's just a football team on drugs. You've seen varsity blues. That's where I, most of my football knowledge comes from. Yeah. Before I, a key I, game, they go to a strip club. And well, we can talk about this. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what are you talking about, Hillary Clinton? But but um, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't want to. I don't want my theory of the election. I think they was like you know it got losable because of mistakes she made, and then like Comey, you know, was the uh, was the final thing that that put the nail in. Yeah, uh, but is the book awful? I think is what one hand's getting. Uh huh. Uh, it's less. It's much less bad than the average political book, and in some places, <laughs> it's, place, it's quite good. 
but it's kind of three books. Where, where is uh, it quite good, actually? I mean, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not uh, 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 doubting you on this because I actually haven't haven't read it with any sort of, uh, with like a sharp eye and saying like, what is the prose like? What is the, I just was kind of picking up passages. What was the, what were the bits of the book you, f- you found either convincing or well rendered? So the, everything where she describes what it is like to be a defeated candidate is interesting just because that stuff's interesting. Uh, there's actually, I, I just keep dumping on New York Times editorial writers, but there's a good uh, John Meacham review of like every recent presidential, can- losing presidential candidates mem- memories of this. And I think she's kind of she and Hubert Humphrey, I think, are the best. Uh, McCain, to- McCain's worth of fighting for is a is a hell of a book. I would. Uh, oh, because that, but that doesn't have twenty thousand eight, but it has him losing two thousand. Yeah, that's the two thousand yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that is good. And she is not, I think, the best at that. But she just she has this kind of really uh, the score settling that she always has wanted to do. And finally, Ken, that's fun to read. Just she, she like dunks on people that she she had to bite her tongue about for like 16, 20 years. Uh, people like Joe Biden, too. She just litigate, litigates moments. And that's kind of fun to read. Um, there is a really kind of uh, boring part of the book about re- litigating each aspect of the, the election. And uh, I think it's good for what it is. I mean, it's kind of good to have that on paper. And then there's a this this part that I think kind of previews what she's going to be from now on, which is uh, like a Madeleine Albright figure or a, a you know kind of a a problem a, a problematic even more problematic Madeleine Albright. <laughs> Madeleine Albright has the uh, Iraqi sanctions thing. Hillary has, has Libya, who will go around for uh, I think the rest of her life giving speeches about being a powerful woman rising. Uh, being defeated, uh, like the Wellesley commencement speech, which is how she closed the book. She's basically going to give a version of that, I think, for the next uh, 15, 20 years uh, or, or longer. You know, who, who knows how it, I, the ultimate irony will be after everyone made fun of her for um, coughing a lot and being on death's door. She'll live to like 130 or something. <laughs> and just, get, just like keep showing up and giving yeah. speeches. At commencement. I, I don't think many Democrats want her to keep showing up anywhere, but I, the, the, uh, <laughs> Uh, David Remnick wrote uh, a long uh, thing about the book that The New Yorker published uh, will be, I think, in next week's issue, but it was published online yesterday. And he made the argument that it was a better book than her previous 78 memoirs. And, yeah. she, and there's a great moment it's in the book. Not where, a high bar. It, no, it's not. There's a great moment things. in the book. She's like, you know, I don't like to talk about myself very much. <laughs> and then you look at the back flap and it's like, how many? I mean, you wrote a book about Socks the Cat, but the rest of them were. But I, I really liked this sentence uh, from uh, David Remnick. Well, he's talking about her previous book. Hard choices. If you're going to read a sentence mm-hmm. from David yeah. Remick, it's going to take 75 minutes. No, it's actually a short one. That's, Hard that's... choices were chronicle over years that the State Department possesses all the flavor and the nutritional value of a breakfast bowl of packing peanuts in warm water, which I thought was, that was a nice, it was a nice uh, uh, description of Hillary Clinton's uh, writing. Uh, yeah, I suspect that, that she'll be doing the Madeleine Albright thing, and I wonder if she'll do her Albright Enterprises uh, or whatever the hell her uh, Madeleine Albright uh, like, thing is called. I am, am not in any hurry to hear a lot from anybody named Clinton about anything. But the thing that I kind of enjoy as a mean person is that whenever Hillary comes back, it becomes a new fight between Hillary and the Bernie bros. Uh, and at this point, Bernie bros are almost all women, at least the ones in my Twitter feed, uh, so which makes them even matter about the yeah. whole thing. Especially um, you using that phrase, which apparently is misogynist. Yeah, probably. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> but like there's some unresolved shit. There's that there is this this lump that the democratic coalition has yet to digest mm-hmm. about all of that. Do you think that that's just 2016 specific? Uh, I'm not sure how it's going to play out in the next election, because it, again, like 
the voices who litigate this uh, on Twitter are like the Peter Dow's and the Oliver Willis of the world. Like it, it's very fun. I mean, they I, watching that stuff go on can be, it, it veers very quickly from fun to like, give me something that give me some poison that'll end it quickly. Yeah. But I, I don't think that's very relevant to what's happening in democratic politics. I mean, I was trying to say before, I don't think anyone in democratic politics looks at Hillary Clinton's campaigns and says, we were basically right, let's do that again. Even like I was saying at the start of this, the they they feel that she should have won a LBJ Goldwater style victory. Uh, even knowing all the things we know now, you have a completely discredited Republican candidate who, if again, look at the exit polls, voters did not think was ready to be president. You shouldn't have made, it should not have been close. And there were, there was some uh, kind of fan fiction happening right before the election by people who obviously are, are still on TV all the time, like uh, Matthew Dowd and Steve Schmidt saying that she was on her way to doing that. So they're like, her advice for what Democrats need to do. No one, like literally no one's taking that. That's why I think that part of the book is not super useful. The thing that I think they will find useful is it's important for Democrats not to think that what they stand for lost in the, in the 2016 election, that, they were undone, one, by her mistakes, two, by inter- intervention. And this is something I'm kind of sympathetic might be too strong a word, but I, I agree with Democrats that it is asking a lot for a campaign to win when three different times your email is is breached and people can just write stories off of it. Like, that's hard to c- recover from. It, it's it's kind of crazy that they they – had to deal with uh, one wave during the DNC, which is actually not that bad, and then a month of that right before the general election. So the part of the book that's probably literally the least interesting, where she wants Democrats to uh, prevent Russia from hacking them, that that seems important. It's probably good for them to do that. But for for the sake of history, um, they need to. I think they're going to want to argue that, look, uh, Trump won by accident. This is not the country we are. This was a a strange fluke. And she's doing that for them. She's making some of that argument as somebody who's never going to run for office again. Uh, Is it useful? I I don't know. I mean, in the short term, not really at all. I don't think I don't think Democrats have appreciated this week, although it's it's probably less bad than they thought it would be. I mean, Hmm. their, their nightmare was, you know, every day a news cycle just about what Hillary said. And that's just frankly, Trump does too much stuff I mean, for that to be the case. I, I wonder, Dave, the the narrative that the emails, et cetera, like cost her the election. I mean, every analysis I've seen suggests that the deluge of negative news that usually comes out of a presidential cycle was largely directed at candidate Trump. I, I just don't know that most Americans who don't really watch cable news and only mm-hmm. occasionally read the paper, if at all, I'm sorry, um, like, I don't know that they were paying much attention to what were largely like innocuous revelations coming out of these emails, uh, a a criminal investigation that didn't, in fact, yield anything in terms of any condemnations against Hillary that were of any kind of substance that most people could disentangle, especially when the opponent was actually being castigated in pretty nasty terms. I mean, the fact that that black and Latino voters came out and that higher percentages of them supported Donald Trump versus the Democratic candidate. I don't know if that screams to me that they didn't trust her because of the emails. That seems like a convenient narrative to latch on to. But it's just not it's not obvious to me that that's true. And apart from the timing 
um, mm-hmm. of the polls kind of shifting. I just don't know that there's, I mean, it seems like kind of weak tea. Uh, if that's if that's what they're reaching for. Well, how do you how do you mean the emails? Because uh, when it comes to her using a private server, she I'm not trying to resolve her. I mean, like she she says it was a mistake. Like, obviously, yeah, it was a huge mistake that uh-huh. changed the way the campaign was covered. Uh, uh, I, I think she she does give that too much credit because she probably had a level of mistrust with the public. And she she starts the book with this. I mean, even even early on, she's admitting that when she first goes to Iowa, more people don't trust her than do. She's like leading in all the polls, but people still have this trust problem. Then the emails emerge as the thing people say they don't trust about her. But I'm referring to the uh, the fact that mm-hmm. John Podesta's email was hacked, the DCCC's email was hacked, and the DNC was hacked. I'm just saying that is something that indeed Democrats can point to to say that the playing field shifted the other direction in an unfair way. Yeah. Uh, it was like any campaign. Like if I'm running, you know, a, a mayor's race and in the last month, all of my campaign's email is released and you can even like, no matter if it's, if it's damaging, if it's just like, here are all the talking points I had before the debate. You can write a story about how, once again, this cold, calculating politician had everything planned out. He's not very spontaneous, is he? Like, I think that stuff hurt her on the margins and, uh, in the the coverage of her, in general, Trump was covered more negatively. But I mean, cooter, the negative cooter grabbing the negative is usually coverage of Trump upon. that she points out, and like this is again mostly her fault. Mm-hmm. The negative coverage of Trump was like uh, splattered over a number of issues. It was, can you believe this? Can you can you believe that he said this? Hillary enabled that often. And one one like one thing I knock in my review of the book is she seems to acknowledge that. Well, she, she definitely acknowledges that there was less coverage when she had like a launch of a policy than there was of Trump talking about immigration or something like that. Mm-hmm. But often she'd launch a policy and at the same time be like attacking Trump for a new gaffe he made. And I don't think she has quite reckoned with how she decided to make the campaign about his unacceptability. It just didn't, it, it was just the wrong thing to do. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think she's right that if you're, all your emails are, are leaked and every day, I mean, I watched this. I, I remember covering a Mike Pence event in Iowa mm-hmm. where his whole speech was basically WikiLeaks just released these three things. And you look at the paper the next day in, uh, I think that was Davenport. And it's, uh, it leads with his attacks on her secret meetings with people that stuff that you know, sometimes other campaigns are allowed to keep a few things secret. Uh, you, you, the the teams are allowed to have their playbook secret. If one team's playbook comes out, then then often it's a controversy whether the <laughs> the game was fair. Yeah. So that's like that's one point I give her. But I I think she's she's a little bit too. Uh, maybe she just can't bring herself to to talk think about it. But she had lots of weeks that were about. Can you believe he attacked uh, Alicia Machado this way or people like that? And in the media that I'm part of, uh, I think TV did more of this. It was boy. How's Trump going to get out of this this predicament? Uh, how's <laughs> being going to this? And so, where was the space for them to talk about any of her policies? Uh, and the final thing, I'll, I'll, final point I make about that is, the, Wisconsin's kind of the emblem of her not running the right campaign because mm-hmm. uh, she didn't put the resources and she she I mean she just like left a bunch of flanks unprotected. Uh, Wisconsin being the most infamous one, but she went back into Wisconsin with TV ads in the final week. But the TV ads were about Trump's uh, offensiveness to women and about Trump uh, as the president with a nuclear football and not about economic issues. She didn't yeah. run ads that forget even positive. She just ran ads saying how much Trump was going to cut taxes on rich people or something. She didn't end up making this argument 
that she she should have made and could have made that every other Democrat makes. Uh, And so she doesn't quite own that. So it's it's like a big, weird, complicated story. So I can't quite begrudge her for wanting to have a, a, a voice in it. But even as you see her do all these interviews, it's. It's never going to be litigated to her satisfaction. Well, Dave, I appreciate uh, appreciate you spending so much time with us. Uh, hopefully, well, we will uh, do it again soon, uh, and we will continue to to read your work closely. Oh, thanks. No, I appreciate being on. It was a good talk. All right, man. Thanks, Wagle. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Right. <clears throat> Let's talk right. shit about him now. <laughs> Fuck that Wagle guy. I don't like that David Wagle. You know, I don't like him at all. Like <laughs> He's a complete bastard. You know, uh, Emerson, Nick, and Palmer. <laughs> Garbage! <laughs> yeah. I think the pills have worn off. Matt's pills. <laughs> oh, my God. So what are we talking about now? The one thing I wanted to talk to him about um, that we didn't oh, get good. a chance to um, so was a piece that he wrote a couple of weeks back. Actually, I'm, it's not disagreement. I mean, it was a, it's effectively a straight news piece. Um, breaking from tech giants, Democrats consider becoming anti-monopoly party. And he talks about the schism between the Obamacrats who were relying on Silicon Valley dough in order to run their campaigns and building these bridges towards Silicon Valley and other members of the Democratic uh, family, I guess, um, who were a lot more concerned about various things that Facebook might be doing or Google might be doing, the need to regulate these big folks and to, to rein them in. Did you hear Facebook ran like a whole like hundred thousand dollars hundred thousand dollars yeah Ruskies absolutely that irrelevant tipped it um it's they're, and making, it's, they're making me into someone <laughs> who's like defends amazing. against like anti-Ruski scares That's I fucking amazing. hate the Ruskies yeah but there's no but, but. <laughs> you hate them but you know there's no you're, but you're, like a hundred thousand dollars for Facebook anyways what's interesting about that is this is something that Democrats are going through um but also Republicans are too like Bannon uh-huh. on his way out the door is saying like we got to go after uh, these guys, we got to like use a, a, a antitrust to go after Facebook. These are the places where, where I mean, one wonders what Pelosi and Schumer and Trump may work on together next. Maybe it's this, but I don't it, know about it's that. It's this weird thing. Like um, um, I wrote a really long piece that no one read, uh, a cover story for a reason about Hillary and free speech. It's a really good piece. I mean, I'm sure I read it. Top, yeah. top 5%. Uh, piece with uh, but so it's <laughs> it's fascinating to watch. Like she could go. I, there was a um, an article in some like gaming um, magazine or online gaming thing uh, that tried to uh, talk about Hillary. It's like you know what Hillary, her track record when it comes to gaming isn't really all that supportive. In fact, no, she sponsored anti-constitutional legislation to make what uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger passed in, in California and eventually got like thrown out by the Supreme Court on mm-hmm. free speech grounds. She wanted to make that federal policy. She was the main co-sponsor of this bill. She's not just like, oh, she was tweaking gaming on the side. She attacked it in a full frontal way. And this gaming magazine was like, oh, you know, she probably, she was just sort of thinking as a mother and maybe her heart wasn't really in it. The, the, the long point of it is that people are uh, in the in Silicon Valley, like in Hollywood, actually uh, don't really care about 
the issues that are even central to their own operation. Hillary was awful uh, in a very similar way as Donald Trump after the San Bernardino uh, attacks in this within a 24 hour period. Remember when Donald Trump said we have to shut down corners of the Internet? Yeah. So did Hillary Clinton. Absolutely. She was at a Haim Saban thing in in, yeah. uh, in, in uh, Washington, D.C., but because she wasn't quite as crude, uh, it didn't make the same headlines. Hmm. But it was the same kind of uh, feeling there. But she also knows the Democrats are going to vote for her anyways because they're culturally affiliated. I think Silicon Valley, regardless of anything, and people are always uh, coming up with different ideas about this um, – uh, and their relationship to big ticket politics. Culturally, Silicon Valley is just the people there are not going to vote Republican because that's gross. You vote for Democrats because they're not gross. And that, I think, affects them more, even if uh, major uh, politicians now will start going after um, them on antitrust grounds. It's going to be hard. It's a hard lift, like when they tried it with Microsoft in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole uh, kind of libertarian uh, uh, category of argument that you do that when you're trying to shake them down for campaign money. You want them to spend money on politics hmm. because for a long time Silicon Valley wasn't spending any money on politics because they're above and beyond all of that. And the Microsoft thing changed that. So I'm not sure that this represents a big divorce going forward. I think that the vast majority of tech people and uh, um, and CEOs and workers are going to end up being pro-Democrat just because – they hate racism and they see Donald Trump as a racist uh, and they think Camille's wrong about this. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that that the that there is more of an appetite um, and it's going to be bipartisan uh, uh, of like thinking about going after them in some mm-hmm. way because we feel like Facebook and Google have too much power. You know, on, I, on, on by the that, way, if he, anyone's interested, maybe mm, I'll post it on Twitter. Mm, um, yesterday, yesterday, um, I was weirdly enough, I was on the Glenn Beck radio program. Uh, talking about this very thing with, about, with Glenn with Beck, Glenn, with Glenn Beck, yeah. Hey. Um, uh, despite the fact that I've <laughs> written and uh, very mean things about him, uh, he, and did the first piece on Vice News tonight, um, was a piece uh, with me and Glenn Beck at his ranch, and we yeah. it, it was a very short piece, and not super happy about that. But it, we ended up putting a fifteen, I think fifteen or twenty minute cut of our interview up online, which did very well, and people liked. But I was pretty tough on him, and um, but for some reason he just is is nice to me and doesn't care. And uh, I talked about that. We talked about the same issue, and it was th- this issue about the regulation of Facebook, uh, Google, Twitter, et cetera, as public utilities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that kind of slippery slope and the scary thing that it is a private company. And, you know, Beck himself was like, you know, we can't do anything about that because they're private companies. But him saying that, look, yeah, it's, it's a scary moment when if Google decided to delist you as a news source and just not allow you to be in their search engine, um, that's a kind of uh, enormous power that these companies have. And we had a little debate about that, and it was pretty interesting, and I'll post it if anyone wants to Where, so um, roughly speaking, who was on what side of that debate? Yeah, he was, I mean, he seemed to be much, much more kind of towards the side of like there's that, you know, we can't regulate private companies, but it is, you know, it was like there's no solution to this kind of thing. Whereas, you know, I, I, I don't buy that at all. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I, I said is that you know, I don't believe that Facebook is going to exist in 10 years or yeah. exist yeah, in the I same. There's People the are profound... lurching away from it. I mean, mm-hmm. I never use Facebook. I yeah. never open it. I used to all the time. And it's the same thing, as I said on his show as, you know, EU regulators uh-huh. went after Internet Explorer and yeah. said, you guys have a hammerlock on the browser market. And it wasn't because uh, the EU and, you know, other regulators went after them for for monopoly power that they lost out. It's because other people made better products. And I think that, you know, 
uh, you know, there's so many technologies that are coming up that people don't realize, like things like blockchain, mm -hmm. which I really recommend people look into. It's it's complicated, but it's when you realize the power of it, you realize how interesting and how transformative it'll be. Um, you know, things like you can have an Uber type app without Uber as a company. And blockchain will will eliminate. I mean, talk about creative destruction. I think technologies like that will change everything, change everything. And so when we sit around saying, you know, Cloudflare, the, the CEO of Cloudflare, who I interviewed on the show, who basically took away the protection of the Daily Stormer. And that's what I was on Beck show talking about, is that uh, Cloudflare exists to prevent websites from being knocked offline from denial of service attacks. So basically anyone can do or mm -hmm. hire somebody for $5 in India to knock your rival's website off offline just by giving it. And if you don't know what a denial of service attack is, it's essentially sending junk packets of data uh, in, in great volume at a website. So it just, it, it won't function anymore. And Cloudflare prevents that from happening. You pay them and they, they, they will knock all that uh, junk down. He woke up one day and, and said, you know, I don't want to protect them anymore, despite the fact they do protect ISIS websites, et cetera. So that was the, that was the, the debate that I had with them on the show. It was a pretty fun, fun debate. But yeah, we are at a point now is that try to find the Daily Stormers website, uh, which I did before I went on the show. And it's like, there's a, there's a basically a tour link uh, to get to it. If you don't know what Tor is, it's like a kind of, you know, something that can basically just put it this way. It's deep web stuff. Uh -huh. You can't, you can't, you, you, you can, you can hide anything with Tor. If they don't know what Tor is, it's yeah, almost yeah. not worth it's trying not to worth explain. Trying to it's a secret website. It's Thank you again. Yeah. Get, Once again, you'll never be able to get they. to. That's yeah, that helpful. means Matt Welsh. <laughs> but no, I think it's a, it's an interesting kind of thing of this concentration of web power. Because I mean, what people didn't understand about the Daily Stormer thing is when GoDaddy, um, very famous company that does Super Bowl ads and puts a lot of money into their into their PR. Um, got rid of <laughs> scintillating Super Bowl ads. Scintillating Super Bowl ads of Danica Patrick with no shirt on. Mm -hmm. um, you know when they kind of decided they weren't going to do business with Daily Stormer, people thought they were hosting the website because GoDaddy does host websites, but they 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 weren't. It was basically they were using their DNS service. And for, you know, again, you'd actually don't have to listen to them back then because I talked about this on that too. <laughs> is that what DNS basically is, when you type in dailystormer.com. Always turns into tech nerds. Yeah, tech here. nerds. And you press enter. Basically, the DNS service translates that text into a series of numbers right. and finds, finds the website for you. An IP address. An IP address, yeah. So you don't have to type in the IP address, right? But so they take this away. They take that power away. And it's like, well, you know, it's... It is like saying, like, well, I don't want a pedophile to, to live next to me, so we're not going to sell that house to him. Fine. That's slightly, the DNS thing's slightly different, and it raises a pretty interesting issue, because that's like taking them out of the phone book. That's like taking all the street signs down so you can locate them. It's basically saying you're not allowed, you cannot find this website, and we're going to make it as difficult as possible. Mm -hmm. We're not housing the content, but we're not going to direct you to it. We're taking you off the map. And, you know, GoDaddy can do that. And they should be able to do that. And I say, great for them to do it. But when you can't, they've been trying to, th these rat bags at, at the Daily Stormer have been trying to find somebody who will, you know, point the dailystormer.com to a DNS and they can't find it. Yeah. So it's a pretty interesting thing of that, that, that although, this although fascist website Tor is, Tor is free and it only requires so much um, technical competence to be able to use Tor, even if you don't know what it is. And and I, I think there's something to be said, you know, there's the there's the edge cases, the people who have these um, marginal views that are sometimes discriminated against and them not being able to, to do things. And then there's this question of the the amazing power that technology companies are presumed to have today, like a Google or a Facebook or a Microsoft at some point in the past. Um, 
and the ephemeralness of the power that these companies wield, the fact that they can be the most dominant technology company in the world at one moment, Microsoft, and a couple of years later, just be a joke, a laughingstock. I mean, Microsoft is the company that, if I'm not mistaken, went and purchased Nokia, which used to be the number one handset manufacturer in the world um, in terms of making cell phones. Not so many years ago, it's the anniversary of the new iPhone this this week was announced, and I'm definitely going to go get my new iPhone X. I don't care what it does. I'm going to give them all of my money, <laughs> and I will buy as many of them as I can possibly carry. Um, but at the house, time, right? but at the time it was, <laughs> but at the time it was re- released. I mean, all anyone could talk about was the amazing deficiencies of this phone and how Apple was going to fall flat on their face. I mean, the the. The fluidness, the pace of innovation is astounding. And the likelihood that these companies will be able to maintain their dominance long enough for regulators to catch them, corral them, and redistribute their power without, in fact, killing the goose that lays the golden eggs, so to speak. Um, it's just its hard for me to believe that one can actually affect the kind of change that they want. But I don't know that voters will get that. I suspect that there's at least some some number of voters who are going to be concerned about what Facebook or Google might do. I just don't see that. I haven't seen it in the polling. I haven't seen even any sort of general instinct about it. It's just the way I hear people talk about Facebook. Right. But then, but then like, as um, if it's sucking their personal information out of their heads and putting it online. No idiot. You posted it there. Yeah. I don't know how many uh, people that's like a a front burning issue. I mean, I, I, I do hear it from people, especially on the right, uh, the right wing and the, so the alt-right wing complain that, you know, their whole living they made on their YouTube videos talking about whatever crazy shit they're talking about. <laughs> and then YouTube took them down and then that they go from being influential to being nobody. And so therefore we need to regulate those guys. I, I, I don't find that to be a particularly convincing sure. argument. I, I do understand that it's a little bit difficult to figure out what to do next when you're the person who's in that situation. But that's a pretty fringy minority situation to find yourself in. Um, I don't doubt that we'll see more of that as Facebook is under pressure, Twitter is under pressure, uh, especially in the wake of our kind of modern politics um, to like go after hate sites and all this kind of stuff, um, that they will be bouncing people and that's going to create a politics. But again, it's it's sort of like campus politics. You know, it's, it's yeah, 200 it, people it, in know, a university exactly. of, of 20,000. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and, and also, you know, you see one of these uh, people, one of these websites will be sacrificed once in a while. And that's and right now it's the, the scumbags of the Daily Stormer who were kicked off of all their sort of domain registrars, got rid of them all in the U.S. They went to Russia. They were kicked off of a Russian one, shockingly <laughs> kicked off of a Russian one, kicked off an Albanian one, kicked off of an Austrian one, mm-hmm. and I think kicked off, and now I think it landed some Icelandic, um, you know, dot .is uh, address now. And there's a game of whack-a-mole with these people. You can never get rid of them. And, and you know, maybe the more kind of sort of, you know, air that this gets on on, on television and Twitter, et cetera, the more likely. I mean, I never would have looked at the Daily Stormer had it not been for the story. Sure, except um, for that column you have to fill out. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, write, I write a column, but it's, it's you know, I'm the... I'm the, the it's the point. books. I'm the, counter, I'm the counterpoint. I'm yeah. the point counterpoint. <laughs> on the, uh, um, but I did, I did just actually look at the website and there's a, a piece praising John Pilger and his oh, uh, no. posi- position on North Korea because oh. apparently the Nazis are pro-North Korea. I can't, I don't understand these people. <laughs> but, you know, you, you might you might go and hunt one 
for a long time and it's a lot of virtue signaling and it's a lot of people feeling good about themselves that, you know, it's very easy and people like to hate Nazis, thank God. And there's 58 million other Nazi websites, Holocaust denial websites out there that will remain untouched and have their own little core. Can you recommend a couple just for, <laughs> uh, I'll do it off here. I'll do yeah. it off here. Okay. Uh, That's good. Yeah. That's very, yeah. You can get uh, David Irving's uh, books at uh, davidirving.org. Yeah. I think it's a very decent of you. It's not Edu. I, I, Edu. <laughs> <laughs> edu 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 who say, you say edu of course i say edu who the fuck says edu i say edu you're looking at him bro <laughs> oh my god what a loser you are edu it's like the planet from planet edu <laughs> no it's edu okay at, for at, education at Go the ahead. risk of humiliating myself completely at the tail end of this podcast don't um, do it yeah i'm gonna do it anyways um Matt, the reason, the reason, the reason I try to push people to substantiate their claims of racism I when get they're it. talking about Donald Trump. No, you don't get it. I do. The, no, no, no. Don't, don't you don't you cut me off. I'm, I'm cut, you don't even I'm know. You, you don't off. know what I'm going to say. All right, all right. I bet you I bet you money. You don't know what I'm going to say. Just think about the number in your head. You can tell me I'm wrong anyways. Afterwards, I'm going to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I do it is because. Even if one presumes Donald Trump is a racist, the strange sort of racist that keeps an MLK bust in his office and visits the African-American History Museum, even if you presume that, it's the weirdest sort of racist around, whatever. The fact is that his failings are so profound that picking the argument on that basis seems silly to me. And repeating it over and over again and insisting that, like Ta-Nehisi Coates, in the remix of the article he wrote last week for The Atlantic, today they released a short three-and-a-half-minute video, um, animated, in fact, uh, wherein he makes the argument that Donald Trump appealed to voters on nothing else but the basis of his race. Repeated over and over and over again, it's unlikely, one, it's not persuasive, two, I don't think it's particularly credible, but... I mean, there are other arguments that one can level if you want to discredit this president and they might be persuasive. And that's why I try to make those substantive arguments. All of that is totally interesting and totally justified. Good. And when we have a guest who's on the phone, Mm -hmm. we have a limited amount of time Mm -hmm. and his area of expertise and value add Mm -hmm. is not that. I don't want to go down a 15 to 25 minute Camille rabbit hole I about racism. I wasn't, I wasn't. I saw the top being open there. Yeah. It was like one of those Pepsi tops or the Coors cans from like 1982. You're going to cut no, your tab. finger on the ring. I think, yeah. I think it's important, tab. especially when one is an influential journalo writing and writing things from a prominent perch that if they have well ingrained biases, which they have never really tangled with. If they have convictions that they believe deep down in their core, which they've never really tried to or had to substantiate, pushing them to do such isn't a big deal. I'm just saying. Waggles in the room. But I but I hear you. I understand. I, look, I, I, I look, I see the clock ticking on a wall, bro. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to maximize. Yeah, 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 you just yeah. want to get back on your pills. I know, dude. I know. My pill wore off, right? So, so like, yeah, you're a, in the extreme claws pain. are coming out oh, of my geez, fingernails. Well, we're gonna get the we're gonna I'm get the hell being a dick. Right we're gonna now? get the hell out of here. Um, yeah. Is there is there anything else before we go? Did anyone read anything that yes. really inspired them this week? Uh, I didn't and read by it. Inspire <laughs> and by inspire, yeah. I mean make you feel just just great about yourself. I don't I don't really think that I read anything that inspired me this week. No? Can I do Can I do what we usually do? You can certainly tell me about something an idiot. Wrote. Something that stupid people. Uh, yeah, wrote. yeah. Tell me. Uh, does anyone remember Sally Quinn? 
Uh, yeah, remember Sally Quinn? Yeah, the, she's the, the doyenne of something. The doyenne of the Washington Post. I mean, she is uh, she is uh, Mrs. Ben Bradley, I believe. Um, big party thrower. Big party thrower. Um, she wrote a book, um, and I got it. <laughs> that's amazing. You know, like I, I can't remember who came up with the phrase "late style." You know, the the writing style. I think sort of the, 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 your twilight years is your late style. Um, and you know. I, if I get to a point, I mean, people would probably say, listeners of this program would probably say, you're a babbling lunatic right now and you're quite young. If I get to a point where I'm even worse than that and I'm in my 70s, take the pen out of my hand, unplug the computer, take the battery out and throw it out the window. Sally Quinn got a book contract. I was like, oh, that'll be interesting. She's right. Call for the Washington Post. Bit of controversy in her last column, I believe. Something about promoting her son-in-law's wedding. And she got kind of bounced for that. But she had a pretty distinguished career at the Washington Post and, you know, was, of course, married to Ben Bradley. She has a book out called Finding Magic. A spiritual memoir, which <laughs> oh, is no. one of the greatest things. I gotta get it, um, and I, I don't know what what uh, what I can. So, so you the, can ask, could this be the magic at last? Yeah, and so so I saw a Breitbart headline on Twitter <laughs> that um, I don't go to the website, but I saw it on Twitter, and I was like, oh god, this is look at they're going off the around the bend on this one. You know, it's like when they who did they accuse. Um, somebody, uh, Hillary Clinton, of being an occultist because she she uh, went to like an art exhibit or something. There's all these weird things. So the headline in this was gatekeeper of D.C. society. Sally Quinn comes out as a cultist used hex to kill people. Yes. OK, so I'm like, oh, good God. They really have just gone way too far. Uh, no, it's actually true. <laughs> Sally Quinn. What? Sally Quinn has uh, written a book in which she says she believes in hexes and she admits to using hexes uh, to kill people. <laughs> I'm not joking. I wish I w was joking. I, I am not joking here. And I'm trying to be fine. Bad. I'm going to find Sally Quinn. Yeah. So she <laughs> said like when she was a kid, uh, uh, she killed three people with evil hexes. <laughs> I, I know that this sounds crazy. Um, but uh, I said, there are three people who hurt me in some way. I hurt somebody I love. So I decided to put a hex on them. This is from the book. I had never done it before. What I wanted to have happen was for, the, was for them to feel what I had felt. I didn't mean for them to die. What? <laughs> In the end, my brother say, yeah, 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 you, you know, there's, there's more on this. Um, and that was it when I was in my early 30s, and I never did it again. And I have always felt guilty about it. This is uh, Sally Quinn talking about how she put a hex on somebody. Does she name and, names? Um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to go into total detail. There's sort of a ritual. I like candles and music and fire and notes and that kind of thing. I just sort of made it up. Are you, are you reading this? Yeah, this is from her book. This is Finding she, Magic. Harper Collins oh published this. Uh, and so she, she's uh, saying, I'm not going to go into detail, but there were candles and yeah, magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she killed people. Uh, according to Sally, <laughs> Sally Quinn, 76 year old Sally Quinn, doyan of DC society, has written a book. Uh, confessing to three murders. <laughs> so <laughs> I just wanted to, um, she said that these That's people, these people all ended up dead within a short period of time of her giving, uh, doing his hex. Her mother also uh, did hexes. So um, I don't even know if this qualifies as some idiot wrote this. It's some sociopath wrote this. Somebody with a mental illness wrote this. A cultist murderer. I mean, that kind of awesome. Yeah. So that late style for Sally Quinn is to go around the bend and not have somebody at HarperCollins or somebody in your immediate family say, you know, can we can we pull this book? We'll give it the advance back because uh, she says uh, she's a psychic and she's killed three people with curses. I've got nothing even one third. Teenth that good, uh, but I just wanted to shout out. Uh, we found out today that Grant Hart, the uh, Husker Du uh, yes. songwriter and yeah. uh, drummer, 
uh, died and just that he was great. And I want the world to hear if I'm doing a podcast on that day, uh, how great he was and uh, uh, go and listen to your Zen Arcade and Candy Apple Gray. Uh, which is my favorite of that. Uh, New Day Rising is my favorite. New Day Rising is, is really favorite. awesome. Uh, and I'm I'm very happy that today when uh, I had mistimed the Oxy pills, <laughs> yeah. I was doing two hours of radio and uh, on uh, on Sirius XM. And like I was kind of like, you get a little bit woozy there. And like uh, I was, had, was interviewing uh, Rand Paul and he had to like suddenly peace out. And I suddenly I was faced with like 15 minutes of uh, air filling, which is okay. You can yeah, figure out how to do okay. it. Yeah, it's hard though. But like, I'm on drugs. I'm like, yeah. I'm like stone cold on oxy uh, on uh, <laughs> here. And so I was really happy to just start like going, <laughs> and I'm sorry for everybody, my uh, uh, friends who uh, think that they, uh, it's a good idea to have me as a guest host there and everything. But it's just like, time will cut you is what Grant Hart was saying in Sorry Somehow. Uh, time, okay. time will cut you. Think about he, yeah. Time will cut you. Yeah. I, I wonder how many people canceled their subscriptions <laughs> within that five minute. I had a version. I had a version of this at. Uh, I don't know if I've told this story because we've done a lot of episodes of a uh, time when I was doing uh, a show on Sirius and I had uh, Fidel Castro's daughter on uh, slated to come on. Oh right, and she bailed at the last minute. Yeah, she did. Well, she bailed, and I introduced her on the line, and I introduced her and uh, Alita Fernandez or something who who uh, defected and and like you know, owns like a pharmacy in Miami or something. And uh, it was after the kind of Obama's opening to Cuba. So I said, hey, let's get her on. The producer got her on and she was on the phone and I introduced her and I could hear the little buzz in the end and she hung up. And I said, oh, God, I must have really offended her by calling her father a bearded psychopath or something. Oh. <laughs> I was like, but, wait, but she actually, she defected to Miami. She, she should be fine. She'll be fine. And so I, 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 you know, motion over to the, uh, to the engineer and to the producer and they call, they're going to call him back. And then somebody holds up a sign, handwritten sign. And I'm in the booth and it says, wasn't Fidel Castro's daughter. <laughs> it was another woman with the same name who lived in New Orleans or something and oh. somehow agreed to be interviewed on Sirius XM oh. and uh, hung up on me. So then I was faced with oh. 30 minutes by myself in a studio and, you know, on a program that if you just, you know, if you build it, they do not come. If you will it, they don't come to say, hey, we're going to take some calls and you got to wait for that board to light up. So I'm like, frig, I got to I got to, you know, I got to do something here. So what you do, the hard thing about talking on the radio is that it's very easy to talk when you guys are in the room. I make yeah. eye contact with you and we talk like we're sitting around. Mm -hmm. If you guys weren't here and I was to tell the story, it would be very different. Yeah. It would come out different. It would sound <laughs> different. So I motion to Especially the if there's producers staring at you. Looking at the empty board. Oh, well, the producer was staring at her shoes because she was so embarrassed. And um, I think pinned up on her on her uh, cubicle was this, this piece of paper said not Fidel Castro's daughter to remind her. <laughs> and so I made her sit down next to me. And I just looked at her and I ranted for like 30 minutes. <laughs> it was like the best 30 minutes of radio ever. I got to the bottom of so building seven. Yeah. Wrote oh. so many things. Oh my God. So anyway, there you go. Fisher, you got anything before you punch out of here? I got a real quick thing that is more of a tease to a piece that I have coming out uh, next week. Self-promotion. Yeah, but, but, it, but yeah, it actually is, but it actually is some idiot who wrote something and it specifically... You? 
Not yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that was last week. Mark, Mark, Mark Bray wrote Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, and he has been fellated everywhere from the New Republic to Meet the Press. Basically, every mainstream uh, outfit that wants to discuss anything related to Antifa has brought on Mark Bray, a Dartmouth professor and the author of the what is so far the definitive book on Antifa, recently published. Most of the people that have had him on don't appear to have read the book and seem even less interested in asking him any critical questions. I have actually read the book and have a pretty critical piece coming out soon um, as far as the why I would define it as a some idiot who wrote this thing. There is literally in more than 200 pages one paragraph devoted to concerns over the self-deputization of Antifa as the arbiters of acceptable violence. <laughs> One paragraph in the entire book. So stay tuned for my critical piece on Mark Bray's Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook. There is a similar thing to, to, uh, to that. I just say very quickly before we leave, um, there is a journalist, uh, a student journalist at the University of Texas, I believe, um, and I think Popat was the one that uh, pointed me to this, um, who was reporting from a anti-immigration rally or something of that effect at his campus. And one of the counter protesters, uh, who was a student, uh, just came up to him and punched him in the face as he was reporting because he was he was um, he was talking to one of the to, to one of the kind of conservative uh, uh, protesters and said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, get, get this guy's point of view. I'm going to write it up. And so the Southern poverty law center had a piece about this that I have to find here. It's, it is here, here, here it is. Um, that I find it absolutely astonishing as a university of Texas at Austin, uh, journalist was, was, was beaten up and the SPLC who has a lot, a lot of problems these days, Interviews at length, uh, somebody, there's a, a legal defense fund for the student that punched this journalist. The guy was just a journalist. And I, I just wanted to read you quickly what he said. And, and, and it seems to me that the Southern Poverty Law Center is reporting on this, writing about this, seems to defend uh, this guy. And basically their argument was that he seemed uh, like he might have been one of the uh, right-wing protesters, mm -hmm. and there was a bit of confusion, and I punched him in the face. I'm not sorry, because he was talking to them, and we shouldn't give those people a voice. <laughs> so it is one of uh, the most astonishing things wow. I have ever read. I, I really... I really just don't even, I mean, he argued that he, the, 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 the journalist, his name is Caracostas. He argued that Caracostas should have more clearly identified himself as a reporter so that he would not be mistaken for a right-wing agitator. And punched in the face. Uh, and, and this is from the, the Southern Property Law Center, who seems to be defending the person that punches poor reporter. In the An anti-hate site. Yeah. So, there yeah. You go. so anyway, okay, I'm done. Yeah, the, the depths of the sort of ridiculousness and absurdity of, of our time um, when it comes to these disputes. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking about um, uh, the the campus protests that are happening in, I, I think they're happening right now. Right is now, it tonight? I've been, been that, following uh, on, Berkeley, on uh, Twitter here. Yeah, Ben Shapiro is talking yeah, ben, at Berkeley with a phalanx of five trillion cops. Ben Shapiro, who, I mean, I don't know. I've, I don't even know. Have I met Ben in person at any point? I mean, he's not a very tall man. He doesn't seem intimidating. Don't, don't go there. He's five foot nine. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. seem intimidating. Ben was a guest on The Independence. I cannot recall. No, no, it was remote. It was yeah, definitely yeah, remote because yeah. there were interesting exchanges. Maybe we'll get him uh, on the podcast at some point to, to talk to us about his experiences 
on on campus. But it is might be able to it is week. strange, uh, especially that he has sparked um, these kinds of protests. Um, I suppose part of the reason uh, might be who is it? Tariq Nasheed, um, the guy who wrote those books about how to be a player and various other things, and now as I guess his job is being on Twitter. Um, He's got like a couple hundred thousand followers. He's yeah, pretty, pretty tweeting, pretty, tweeting yeah. stupid things um, like suspected white supremacist Ben Shapiro, <laughs> who tries to mask his racist rhetoric by claiming to be Jewish, is in Berkeley now. Claiming That's to be hashtag Bennett Berkeley. The guy wears a yarmulke on TV every day. Fake <laughs> Ben Shapiro. <laughs> fake for Christ's Ju- sake. Fake Jew alert. Fake I Jew mean, alert. There you know, it it's like uh, Heim Perlgott, <laughs> fake Jew, uh, is masquerading like people are mental. I just can't even tell Phenomenal. No. Yeah. Um, one, one last uh, punch out thing. Jason D. Hill uh, wrote something for Commentary Magazine. Um, n- I didn't agree with every word of it, but I agreed with virtually every word of it. Um, <laughs> and it is it is unusual for me to read something that I agree with so forcefully. Um, I, I mean, I can actually tell you like the bit about the bit that I disagreed with was probably his description of black on black crime. And I might not have been so generous uh, to Mr. Coates, but it's uh, the title of this is an open letter to Ta-Nehisi Coates. It's often beautiful and eloquent. Um, and my uh, is a fellow fellow Jamaican. Uh, and I, I think it's um, it's it's phenomenal to read other people um, who uh, who share my correct views on various things. If only you would write something. Fills me, fills me with joy. Anyways, I think we're done here. I think we can leave. Bye. 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 We we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.